Our scripture passage this morning is continuing in the book of Romans. We're going to be in chapter 14, starting with verse 13 through the rest of the chapter. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever he does not proceed from faith is sin. Well, thank you, Nikki. Well, this morning we are continuing our sermon series in Romans, and after this morning we're going to have two chapters left, and so we are nearing the end, and then we're going to start it all over again. Um, I'm, I'm kidding. But uh, like we're 14 chapters into this, and I'm like, man, there's still so much we haven't covered. You know, we could re-preach this entire sermon series and, and not even exhaust it. But anyway, we're not going to continue on in Romans after we're, we're done with it. But um, we are continuing, though, here in Romans 14 this morning. And Picking up where we left off from last week, and if you remember, this chapter is all about how Christians in the same church are to disagree with one another, or to resp- how they're not—they're not supposed to disagree, but how they're how, how they're supposed to respond to those that they disagree with in the church. So, how Christians in the same church body are supposed to respond to other Christians in that same church body that they disagree with on non-essential issues. And so, as we're going to go through this passage, the, the temptation for most of us is going to be think about somebody else and think about how they need to change and think about how, yeah, they do that. And the temptation is, is to overlook yourself and to think that, yeah, I'm, I'm glad so-and-so is listening to this this morning. But I, I would encourage you to, to not buy into that temptation. And instead, I would encourage you to listen as if this message is for you. As if these words are for you. To allow these words to examine your heart, as opposed to allowing these words to cause you to point the finger at somebody else within the life of our church. And so then, if you remember last week, I, I gave a list of 25 issues that this church and members of this church have disagreed about since this church was, was, was planted. And so some of y'all wrote down some of the, that, 
you know, list and what those, some of those issues were. Some of y'all giggled and laughed when you, when you heard about what some of these issues were. Some of y'all yelled a hearty amen when you heard what some of these issues were. But here's the, the list of 25 issues. This isn't exhaustive, but that members of our church have, have disagreed about for the last nine years. Again, no comments, no, no clapping as we go through this list. Homeschool, public school, private school, getting a tattoo, drinking alcohol, celebrating Halloween, celebrating Christmas and Easter, celebrating birthdays, reading Harry Potter, doing yoga, makeup, jewelry, clothing and modesty, moms working outside the home, war and participating in war, politics, the Sabbath and how you treat the Lord's Day, drums in church, care for the environment, what you wear to church, movies, secular music, watching UFC, smoking a cigar or pipe, dating or courtship, taking out a loan, vaccines, and masks. So again, that's not an exhaustive list of everything that issues that people within our church have disagreed about over the years, but that's just a sampling of a list. But the important thing, if you remember from last week that I wanted to try and highlight, is that when it comes to all these areas and all these issues, these are what I would call non-essential issues. And when I say they're, they're non-essential, I don't mean that they're not important. Like these are all important issues. But what I mean by non-essential is that they're, they're not essential. And kind of makes sense, right? What, what I mean by that, and you can see this on your handout there, is that it's important to understand this difference between an essential issue and a non-essential issue in Scripture. That essential issues, once again, are those issues in which there are clear and explicit commands and doctrines of Scripture that must be followed and believed by anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. In other words, these are clear, like black and white commands and doctrines in the Bible that to not follow them means that you're living in sin or you're committing heresy. And so then for us as a church, we've outlined, we've outlined what these essential issues are in our statement of faith and in our membership covenant. Essential issues, black and white. When it comes to non-essential issues, though, see this on your handout, non-essential issues are those issues in which there aren't any clear and explicit commands and doctrines of Scripture, and therefore Christians are free to do what they believe best honors the Lord. And so these issues are, are gray areas in Scripture where there's freedom, right, among Christians to do and follow what they best believe honors and pleases Jesus. But, it, but it's right here, though, right? These non-essential issues that Christians most oftentimes disagree with in the life of the church. And when Christians disagree over these non-essential issues, they usually always fall into, into one or two one or two groups. And Paul mentions both of these groups here in Romans chapter 14. And so the first group is what he calls the weak. And he doesn't mean that, please hear this, he doesn't mean that in a derogatory term, in a derogatory sort of way. He doesn't mean this in a negative sort of way. That, oh, you're, you're weak. It's not what he, it's not the attitude in which he's labeling them with this term of, of weak with. Instead, when he talks about the weak believer in Romans chapter 14, and again, you can see this on your hand out there, weak believers are those Christians whose personal consciences and convictions 
Don't allow them to participate in certain activities and behaviors, even though those activities and behaviors aren't explicitly forbidden in Scripture. And so then if you remember from last week, Romans, uh, in Romans 14, the weak believer here is specifically a reference mainly to Jewish Christians. And if you remember, they, they had weak consciences when it came to eating meat. They believed that they were still under the Old Testament food laws, and so they believed that if they ate meat, then they would be sinning against the Lord and that that would be dishonoring to the Lord. The other group, though, was, was the strong. And the strong is a reference to those Christians, you see this on your hand up, those Christians whose personal consciences and convictions allow them to participate in certain activities and behaviors because those activities and behaviors aren't explicitly forbidden in Scripture. And so then again, if you remember in Romans 14, the strong here is specifically referenced mainly to Gentile Christians in the church. But the reason he calls them strong is because their conscience is strong. Meaning when it comes to certain activities that aren't forbidden in Scripture, like eating meat, they're confident that they're able to participate in those activities, that they're, they're confident that they're free to exercise their freedom in these activities without sinning against God and dishonoring Him. And so then, that's Romans 14, the strong and the weak, mainly Gentile Christians, mainly Jewish Christians. But the reality is, when you fast forward 2,000 years later, we have both of those groups in the life of our church as well. We have those whose consciences and convictions allow them to participate and exercise their freedom in many of these non-essential issues that I mentioned earlier. At the same time, we have members whose consciences and convictions won't allow them to participate in these non-essential issues that I mentioned earlier. And that's awesome. Both groups are great. It's good. Strong, weak. But what's not awesome and what's not great is when one group passes judgment on the other group and one group looks down on the other group and the other group passes judgment on the other group and the other group looks down on the other group and neither group welcomes and accepts the other. Instead, they just fight and quarrel and are filled with all this conflict and tension in their relationships with one another. It's fine to have the weak and the strong in the same church. It's not fine for the weak and the strong to pass judgment and look down on one another and quarrel with each other and develop these little cliques that seek to isolate themselves from one another because they're annoyed by the other group. That's where the line is crossed. And so then this is why Paul wrote what he did in those first 12 verses that we looked at last week in Romans chapter 14. He wrote those 12 verses to not only exhort and encourage the church at Rome, but to exhort and encourage Cross Fellowship Church to be able to welcome and accept those that we disagree with on these non-essential issues. And so to exhort and encourage us not to judge one another and look down on one another and quarrel with each other when it comes to all these non-essential issues. 
starting here, though, in verse 13, we're going to see kind of this transition that Paul begins to make. He, he's still going to address this issue of how Christians in the same church are to relate to, respond to, treat those that they disagree with on these non-essential issues. But in doing so, what he's going to do is he's going to provide a warning. And the specific warning that he's going to provide is directed to a specific group of people in the church. And that specific group of people and that specific warning that he's going to provide is this. You see it on your handout there. Here's the warning. It's that those with a strong conscience, we explain who that group is. Those with a strong conscience must not allow the exercise of their freedom in any of these non-essential issues to embolden or cause a weaker brother or sister in Christ to sin against and violate their conscience. That's the warning, verse 13, all the way through verse 23 that we're going to see in our passage this morning. And so look at verse 13 with me. Look what Paul says there. He says this. He says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. And so that, that's, a, that's a recap of what he was talking about in the first 12 verses there of chapter 14. We're not to pass judgment on those we disagree with on these non-essential issues. Instead, look at how we're supposed to respond to those that we disagree with on these non-essential issues. Look the rest of verse 13. He says, but, so don't pass judgment on them, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So it's important to understand who Paul is specifically addressing here in verse 13. And we're going to see this later. It's going to become a lot more clear later. But he's specifically addressing those with strong consciences in the church. So those Christians who have strong consciences that allow them to exercise their freedom in all these non-essential issues. And he's telling those with a strong conscience, this is the warning, he's telling them to not put a stumbling block to not put a hindrance in the way of a brother or sister who has a weak conscience. Which then begs this question, what's a stumbling block? Like what, what's the stumbling block that he's referring to here in verse 13? Well, this whole idea of a stumbling block is a metaphor that we see used all throughout Scripture. And it's specifically a reference to stumbling and falling into sin. And that, that's how Paul's using it here. And, and what we're going to see is this. Those who then have a strong conscience in all these non-essential issues must never put a stumbling block in the way of a weaker, weaker brother or sister in Christ in such a way in, in all these non-essential issues. They must never put a stumbling block. They ne they must never, those who have a strong conscience must never cause and be the cause of that weaker brother or sister in Christ sinning. Which begs this question, how? Like, how, how would they do that? And the reason that's such an essential question is because if, if these issues we're talking about aren't like black and white essential sin issues, how then could a Christian with a strong conscience cause a weak Christian to sin? Does that make sense? Like if these aren't sin issues we're talking about, if these aren't black or white 
commands of Scripture that we're talking about, these non-essential issues, then how could a Christian with a strong conscience cause a Christian with a weak conscience to sin in issues that aren't sin issues? That makes sense? Well, here's how. Look at the rest of verse, look at verse 14. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in, an, in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. That can be a little hard to follow, but do you see what Paul's saying there? He's essentially saying the strong are right. That's what he's saying. They're right in the fact that meat, the situation going on in Romans 14, in and of itself isn't unclean. And because of that, then it's okay to eat meat. And everybody says, amen, right? But here's the kicker. Even if that's true, even if it's true that meat is perfectly fine and clean to eat, if the weak think that it's unclean, then it's unclean for the weak. Did you catch that? Or to phrase it in another way, kind of contemporize it. Even if a non-essential issue isn't sinful, if the weak think that it's sinful, then it's sinful for them. That's really important to grasp. Because that then, this then is how a Christian with a strong conscience can cause a Christian with a weak conscience to stumble and fall into sin in these non-essential issues that aren't sinful. They can cause them to sin by causing them to violate and sin against their conscience. In other words, even though they aren't breaking an explicit command of Scripture, they are sinning against their conscience by doing something that they think is sinful and that's dishonoring to the Lord. And that's sin. And, and Paul repeats this a few verses later. Go down all the way down to verse 20. Look at the very middle of verse 20. He's going to make this same point that he just made in, in verse 13 and 14. Look at the middle of verse 20. He says, everything is indeed clean. So he's restating verse 14 there. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And so then again, what Paul's doing here in verse 20 and 21, he's saying the same exact thing that he said in verse 13 and 14 that we just looked at. He's, he's once again saying that meat and wine aren't unclean. They're, they're not sinful in and of themselves. Just like all the non-essential issues that we talked about earlier, they're, they're not sinful in and of themselves. But, and this is the big but, he's saying that even if a non-essential issue isn't sinful, it's wrong for a Christian with a strong conscience to cause a Christian with a weak conscience to violate their conscience and sin against their conscience by doing something that they believe dishonors the Lord. And again, he says the same exact thing. Look down to verse, in verse 22 and, and also into verse 23. In verse 22, he says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. 
Do you see the word faith there at the very beginning of verse 22 there? The word faith could also be translated as the word confidence or assurance. And it's specifically a reference in, in Romans 14 here, that word faith or confidence or assurance is a reference to the confidence a, a Christian has to participate in these non-essential issues. And so he's saying those with a strong conscience, they're confident that they're free to participate in these non-essential issues without sinning and displeasing the Lord. And because of that then, Paul's saying that Christian, he's blessed. He's blessed. And the reason that he's blessed is because he's able to to participate in these non-essential issues without passing judgment on himself, without feeling condemned and guilt-ridden because he's doing these non-essential issues and participating in these non-essential issues. He's able to do that without feeling like he's dishonoring the Lord. And because of that, God, Paul says, man, that's, he's blessed to be able to exercise his freedom in these non-essential issues without feeling condemned and as if he's dishonoring the Lord. So those with a strong conscience are blessed in that way. But guess who's not blessed? Bless who's that, guess who that's not true of? That's not true of those who have a weak conscience. Instead, look at verse 23 and what Paul says about the, the Christian with, the, with a weak conscience. He says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Again, the word faith here is a reference to the confidence, assurance a Christian has to participate and, and, and exercise their freedom in these non-essential issues. And so then if a Christian has a weak conscience and isn't confident that he's able to eat meat and participate in these non-essential issues without dishonoring the Lord, and if he goes ahead and eats meat and engages in these non-essential issues that he's unsure about whether they honor the Lord or dishonors the Lord, then he's sinning against the Lord. Because he's doing something that violates his conscience. He's sinning against his conscience. Because he's doing something that he's not sure about, whether it honors the Lord or dishonors the Lord. And doing and not and because of that, then he's he's dishonoring the Lord. And it's sin. I know that's a lot. We just went through. Let me put it all together. What Paul's saying here is this. There's two ways to sin. There's two ways to sin. First, you can sin by breaking a commandment of the Lord. Thou shalt not murder. You go out and murder, you sin. You break a commandment of the Lord. There's a second way you can sin, though. You can sin by violating your conscience against the Lord. Did you catch that? This is really important. You can sin by breaking a command of the Lord, which is obvious, we know that. But you can also sin by by violating your conscience against the Lord. And that's the whole point that Paul's making here in Romans 14. He's saying, or he's not saying, that the strong better not cause the weak to sin against a command of the Lord. It's not what he's saying. He's not telling the strong 
to make sure that they don't cause the weak to sin against the command of the Lord. Instead, he's saying that those with a strong conscience better not cause those with a weak conscience to participate in non-essential issues that they believe are dishonoring and displeasing to the Lord and thereby sin against and violate their conscience. That right here then is how those with strong consciences put a stumbling block in the way of those with weak consciences and cause them to sin. They cause them to sin by causing them to sin against their conscience. So practically speaking, what, what's that look like? Well, here's what it looks like. Let's say there's a family in our church who views Halloween as a fun time to eat candy and to dress up in goofy costumes and to love their neighbors. Let's say there's another family in our church who, who views Halloween as a, as a pagan satanic holiday. And because of that, if they participate in Halloween, they feel like they're honoring Satan and dishonoring the Lord. And let's say the family who views Halloween as just candy time and dressing up in, in funny, goofy costumes talks the, the, the family who, who associates Halloween with a satanic holiday into going trick-or-treating with them. And about halfway through trick-or-treating, the family that views has the weaker conscience and, make, and views Halloween as the satanic holiday, about halfway through trick-or-treating, they're just ridden with guilt. They're just, they're just feeling just condemned that they're out here celebrating this satanic holiday and, 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 and it's dishonoring to the Lord. That is a picture an example of what Paul is warning against here and how a member of our church with a strong conscience in a non-essential area could put a stumbling block in the way of a member with a weak conscience and cause them to sin against and violate their conscience. And I'm not just picking on Halloween just for, all right, we, we're the candy people, okay, in our house. But, but if we went around and talked those who are the satanic, not satanic people, who are, you know, to, to go trick-or-treating with us, and, oh, you know, I just can't, you know, and, and then five minutes in, they're just ridden with guilt and thinking they're dishonoring the Lord. That's on us. It's on me. It's on me. I, I, I'm putting a stumbling block, causing, influencing brother, sister in Christ with a weaker conscience to sin against their conscience and that, that's, that's not the weaker brother who needs to change. That's me that needs to change. That's true for Halloween. That's true for alcohol. That's true for just all the rest of those 23 other non-essential issues that we talked about earlier. In saying all that, though, it's important to understand here what Paul is saying here and what Paul is not saying here. And you see this on your head. Paul is not saying in Romans 14 here that those with a strong conscience must refrain from non-essential issues simply because a weaker brother or sister disagrees with it, is irritated by it, or is even offended by it. That's not Paul's main point here. So let me say this before... People get upset. 
yes, we need to be sensitive to one another. We need to be careful in how we exercise our freedoms. We need to love each other and, and be sensitive to one another and, and all of those things. Yes and amen to all that. And because of that, the, there may be times when, when then you, you don't need to exercise your freedom in an area because of someone with a weaker conscience disagrees with it or is offended by it or is irritated or annoyed by it or, or whatever. You, maybe out of love and sensitivity and care for them. Yes, just refrain from that non-essential issue because of the annoyance and the, the, how that's going to cause disagreement and, and a, an offense to uh, your weaker brother or sister in Christ. But that's not the point Paul's making here. Everybody with me? That, that's not the issue that's going on here. Paul's not saying here that if there's one person in our church who's offended or disagrees with a certain non-essential issue, then every other member in the life of our church has to and must refrain from that non-essential issue so they don't offend our weaker brother or sister in Christ. Again, that is not the point that Paul is making here. If that's the point he's making here, then, then nobody's doing anything here. I mean, like literally nothing. Instead, the point Paul is making here is about the conscience. This is all about the conscience. That's the point he's making here. And, and he's saying, when it comes to the conscience, he's, that those with a strong conscience don't don't cause a weaker brother or sister to sin against their conscience by participating in a non-essential issue that they believe is sin and dishonors the Lord. Like that's the warning that Paul is making here. It's, it's not just, hey, don't offend people in the life of the church. That's not the point. The point is don't cause the weaker brother or sister to sin against their conscience by compelling them or causing them to exercise their freedom in a non-essential issue that they believe dishonors the Lord. That's the point that Paul is making here. It's not just don't go trick-or-treating if one person in our church disagrees with and is offended by Halloween. That's not the point he's making here. Instead, it's the point he's making here is don't cause someone in our church who's against Halloween to go trick-or-treating with you and violate their conscience and cause them to do something that they believe dishonors the Lord. That's the point that Paul is making here. And so then, let's get practical real quick. Like, evaluate your heart. Like, really, evaluate your heart. Like, are you doing this to a weaker brother or sister in Christ in our church? Like, is there any way the exercise of your freedom in a non-essential issue is putting a stumbling block in the way of a weaker brother or sister in Christ and causing them to violate and sin against their conscience? If, if the answer to that is yes, then Paul here is saying that the problem isn't them. They're not the ones who need to change. They're not the ones who just need to grow up. They're not the ones who just need to mature in this area. Instead, Paul is saying that the problem is you. The problem is the person with a strong conscience. And so they need to not exercise their freedom 
in a way that causes their weaker brother, sister in Christ to violate and sin against their, their conscience. Again, not talking about those things that just offend people. Talking about being a stumbling block that causes them to exercise their freedom in a non-essential issue that causes them ultimately to violate their conscience in a way that they believe dishonors the Lord. Here's then why we should respond this way. Like if you wonder, well, why? What, what's the motivation? Like why, why should we respond this way? Why should those who have a strong conscience not, not put a stumbling block in the way of a brother or sister in Christ who has a weaker conscience? Why? why? Give me some good reasons. Well, Paul gives us three good reasons here, starting in verse 15, really through the very beginning of verse 20 there. And you see these on your handout there. The first reason, those with a strong conscience shouldn't cause the weaker brother, sister in Christ to sin against their conscience is this. The first reason is because you love your brother, your weak brother or sister, and you don't want them, you don't want to cause them to grieve. You love them, and you don't want to cause them to grieve. It's what Paul says there in verse 15. Look there with me. He says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So again, the, the, the person that Paul is addressing here, in verse 15 here, is, is those with a strong conscience. And he, what he's saying here is that if a brother is grieved about what the strong brother is eating, then the strong brother is no longer walking in love toward the weaker brother. But, but again, it's important to remember the, the context here and why the weaker brother is grieved by the stronger brother. Again, he's not grieved simply because he sees a Christian with a strong conscience eating food that the weaker brother believes is, is unclean and therefore dishonoring to the Lord. Like that's not why the weaker brother is grieved. Instead, the reason the weaker brother is grieved is because the strong brother's actions cause the weaker brother to participate in an activity that the weaker brother believes is dishonoring to the Lord. And because he engaged and participated in activity that he believes is dishonoring to the Lord, then he's grieved by it. He's ridden with guilt. His conscience is violated. He believes he's sinned against his conscience. And so he's grieved over it. What, what that means then, do you see how this relates then to those with a strong conscience? What that means then is, is that if you have a strong conscience in any of these issues, non-essential issues we looked at, and if you know that the exercise of your freedom in one of these areas is going to cause a weaker brother in Christ to sin against their conscience and as a result be grieved by doing something that they, the weaker brother believes dishonors the Lord, then if you genuinely and truly love that weaker brother, then you won't exercise your freedom in that area. In, in front of them, in, in such a way that, that would cause them and influence them and embolden them to engage in that non-essential issue and therefore in their mind cause them to stumble in dishonoring the Lord. And the reason you're not going to exercise your freedom in that area in a way that would cause them to do that isn't because that issue is sinful, but because you love your brother and you don't want him to violate his conscience and sin against his conscience and do something 
that he or she believes is dishonoring to the Lord and therefore be grieved by. And so then just fill in the blank when it comes to that non-essential issue, whatever, whatever that non-essential issue is. If that issue is causing a Christian with a weak conscience to violate their conscience, then if you love that, if you love that brother or sister in Christ, you're going to refrain from that in such a way that it will not embolden him or her to do it. That might mean you do it in private instead. That might mean you do it with just those who have a strong conscience in such a way that you're able to exercise your freedom in that area with those, knowing, knowing that you all have a strong conscience in that area and it's not going to cause or embolden a weaker brother or sister in Christ to participate in that and, and therefore believe they dishonor the Lord and be grieved by that. So that's the first reason. Those with a strong conscience must not cause those with a weaker conscience to sin against their conscience because those who have a strong conscience actually love and care about those who have a weaker conscience and they don't want to grieve them. The second reason, though, is this, because Christ died for your weaker brother or sister and therefore you don't want to destroy them. Because Christ died for your weaker brother or sister and you don't want to destroy them. This is what Paul goes on to say there in verse 15, the rest of verse 15, look there with me. He says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not destroy them. What he means by that within the context here is don't destroy their conscience. Don't cause them to do something that they think is dishonoring to the Lord and that's not pleasing to him and that's sin. That when you cause your weaker brother to do that, you're destroying him. You're destroying his conscience. And the reason his conscience is destroyed is because it's ridden with guilt. It's ridden with condemnation and, and judgment because he believes or she believes that they've done something that's dishonoring to the Lord and that's sinful in the Lord's sight. And the reason we don't want to do that like the reason we don't want to destroy the conscience and destroy our weaker brother and sister in Christ is because Jesus died for them. Like, like think about that. Put this together. Think about one of, of these non-essential issues that you have a strong conscience in, that you feel like you can exercise your freedom in without dishonoring the Lord. And then think about someone in our church another member of our church who has a weak conscience in that same area and that might be tempted to sin then against their conscience and violate their conscience because you somehow cause or embolden them to exercise their freedom in this area and participate in this non-essential issue. So think about that. Like the issue and the person. Now think about this. There's two ways then for you with a strong conscience, to view this person who has a weak conscience in this area. You could, you could view them as just a weak, immature, overly strict, legalistic Pharisee that needs to, be so, that needs to stop being so close-handed and close-fisted on all these non-essential issues and therefore be irritated and, and annoyed by them. That's one way you can view them. Or you could view them as someone Jesus died for. 
Like you could view them as, as someone who, who was once, once under the judgment of God and who was once deserving of, of God to pour the full fury of his wrath on because of their sins. But as someone who Jesus came on this, into this world and substituted himself on the cross, taking the judgment of God that they deserve for their sins so that they could be rescued and saved from the judgment they deserve and reconciled to an infinitely holy God. That is, is who this brother or sister is that has a weak conscience. They're just not a harsh, a, a, a strict, legalistic, weak, immature, need-to-grow-up Pharisee. They're a brother or sister that Jesus has died for. And, and because of that, then, since that's true, then, then we shouldn't seek to destroy them and treat them as if they and their conscience don't matter. Because the reality is they do matter. And their conscience does matter. And the proof that they matter and the proof that their conscience matters is that Jesus died for them. And since Jesus died for them and gave up his life for them, then we, at the very least, should be willing to give up our freedoms for them in these non-essential issues that would cause them and enable them and embolden them to sin against their conscience in these areas. Which then leads to this third and final way those with a strong conscience should, or reason for why those with strong conscience shouldn't cause those with a weaker conscience to violate their conscience and sin against their conscience. The third reason is this. It's because what ultimately matters in the kingdom of God aren't non-essential issues. Instead, what ultimately matters in the kingdom of God is building each other up in righteousness, peace, and joy. So what Paul says there starting in verse 16, look there with me. He says, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. So do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying that what ultimately matters and what's ultimately important in the kingdom of God isn't your school choice. It's not your political views. It's not your view on this or your view on this or, or how you respond to any of these non-essential issues. None of these non-essential issues are ultimately important and ultimately matter in the kingdom of God. Instead, what ultimately matters and what's ultimately important in the kingdom of, of God is building each other up in righteousness, peace, and joy. Meaning, building each other up in righteousness. Meaning, living lives of righteousness and holiness in our, in our relationship to the Lord in such a way that honors Him. Righteousness in our relationship with the Lord. And living in peace and harmony in our relationships with one another. 
And as we're living in righteousness in our relationship to the Lord, as we're living in peace and harmony in our relationships to one another, then the result of that is that we're living in, in joy. And our church and our body is filled with joy. Like this is important. This right here is what the kingdom of God is ultimately about. The kingdom of God is not ultimately about whether or not you do yoga or whether or not you read Harry Potter or whether or not you get a tattoo or, or drink alcohol or, or watch certain types of movies and all those things. Those aren't the things that are ultimately important and what the kingdom of God is ultimately about. Instead, what's ultimately important and what the kingdom of God is ultimately about is righteousness and peace and joy. And because of that, since that's true, then the reality of that then should affect how a Christian with a strong conscience relates to a Christian with a weak conscience when it comes to all these non-essential issues. That if it's true that these non-essential issues aren't what's ultimately important in God's kingdom, then those who have a strong conscience then on these issues should be able to voluntarily abstain and refrain from them and not exercise their freedom in them and participate in them in such a way that would cause a weaker brother or sister in Christ to stumble in that area and violate their conscience. And the reason that's the case is because what ultimately matters and what's ultimately important in the kingdom of God isn't any of, aren't any of these non-essential issues and whether or not you, get, you have the freedom to carry out your, your, and exercise your freedom in all these non-essential issues. Instead, what's ultimately important and what the kingdom of God is ultimately about is living in such a way in our relationships to one another that what we embolden and compel and cause in each other's lives is building each other up and living lives that are righteous and holy and pleasing and honoring in the sight of God and emboldening and compelling and causing one another to live in peace in our relationships with one another and emboldening and causing and compelling us to live in joy in our relationships with one another and in our relationships to the Lord. That's what's ultimately important in the kingdom of God and what should be ultimately important in the life of our church. That so many times we can become emotionally attached to these non-essential issues as if we idolize them or as if our identity is, is just somehow strongly attached to them. And a lot of it has to do with pride. A lot of it has to do with idolatry. And a lot of it has to do with this whole notion and idea of we want our freedoms and nobody's going to restrict or restrain my freedom. But the reality is, that's not what the kingdom of God is about. And that's not what our church should be about. That when people think about Cross Fellowship Church, and people wonder about Cross Fellowship Church, and people hear about Cross Fellowship Church, the last thing they need to think about is one of these non-essential issues. Instead, when people think about Cross Fellowship Church and the reputation of Cross Fellowship Church, it's not, oh, that, that's the church that does this. 
That's the church that allows this. That's the church that believes this. That's the church who just fill in the blank on a non-essential issue. Instead, when people hear about Cross Fellowship Church and hear about Cross Fellowship Church and the reputation of Cross Fellowship, they should think righteousness. Uh, Those are the people who are striving to live righteous and holy lives that are pleasing and honoring to the Lord. Uh, Those are the people who live in peace in their relationships with one another. Not because they all agree on, with each other on all these non-essential issues, but because the strong are willing to abstain and refrain and, the, and be cautious in their relationship to the weak. And the weak doesn't pass judgment on the strong. And the strong don't look down on the weak. And they accept one another and welcome one another within their body. And they don't quarrel with each other. Like, I wonder what, what's wrong. That's weird. What's going on there with those people? They don't look like the world around us. They're, they're not polarized in all these different little cliques and groups and fights over these non-essential issues. And we can tell them, do you know what the difference is? It's because that's not what this church is about. Church is about all those issues. The reason this church is not all about this, those issues is because the kingdom of God isn't all about those issues. And so we're not about those issues. And so the only issue we're we're ultimately about is Jesus. And it's because of Jesus and the transformation that he's had in our hearts that ultimately allows us and compels us to build each other up in righteousness and peace and joy in our relationship with him, but also in our relationships with one another. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. And I know uh, this chapter is sensitive. It's hard. There's so many issues that have the ability and the opportunity to just completely divide our church body. There's so many issues that are easy for us to be emotionally attached to and to go on a crusade on. And to make more important than you ever intended. And so, Lord, help us to keep the main things the main thing. Help us to realize what's most important in your kingdom. And one way for us to do that is to think five million years from now. And what's ultimately going to be important five million years from now. Hopefully, if Jesus has returned by then. What's ultimately going to matter in the new heavens and the new earth aren't our politics, our school choices, our views on this or that, our freedom to exercise, our freedom in this area or that area. Instead, what's ultimately going to matter then is that we're living in righteousness and peace and joy in our relationships with one another and on our, in our relationship before you. And so I pray, even the, the Lord's prayer, that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come on earth in this church as it is in heaven. And we pray all these things 
in the precious name of Jesus.